So welcome to the Privileged Man podcast. I'm delighted to introduce our guest today, Daniel Priestley. Dan founded his first company in 2002 in Australia at the grand old age of 21, before moving over to London in 2006. Arriving with only a suitcase and a credit card, Dan set up a new venture and grew it to seven figures in revenue in just under two years. In the process, he became a leading figure in his industry and with several more successes under his belt, he is now regarded as one of the world's top professional speakers on business, personal branding, and entrepreneurship. Dan is also a best-selling author of the books, Key Person of Influence, Entrepreneur Revolution, and Oversubscribed, just to name a few. Dan's knowledge of artificial intelligence is vast, and today he gives a stark warning of what it means for you, your job, and your lifestyle, whilst also giving you ways of getting ahead of the curve and harnessing it to your benefit. We're about to dive into a world where geographical boundaries are ever more blurred, and the digital landscape is the new frontier for success. So whether you're a budding entrepreneur, a seasoned professional, or just curious about the future of work, this is a conversation you don't want to miss. If you enjoy the podcast, please subscribe, give us five stars, leave a review, and share episodes on your social channels. The more the podcast is listened to, the bigger the impact. And there are men out there who have listened to these podcasts as a first inspiring point to taking huge steps of growth in their lives. So a big thank you for listening, and an even bigger thank you for supporting. There are links in the bio section to our website and scorecards that will give you instant insights into how balanced your life is. So please feel free to take them and receive the reports. Now, on to the main event. Dan, welcome to the Privileged Man podcast. Thanks for having me on. I love this studio. If people didn't know, they'd think we might be on the back of a yacht or a cool day club like a Nicky Beach or something like that. Yeah, I'll take it. I'll take it. I mean, I haven't been that cool for a good five years. But... <laughs> me, me neither. I'm just imagining what that would be like. <laughs> oh, well, I've seen the photos of you on yachts and in Dubai in the last couple of weeks. All photoshopped. <laughs> AI, AI generated. <laughs> well, talking of AI, the IMF said this week AI is going to affect 60% of jobs in developed countries. Uh, Elon Musk said to Rishi Sunak last year, there'll come a point where no job is needed. So if you're a successful British man, say you're in professional services right now, how concerned should be for your job and on what kind of timeline? Mm, I suppose there's, there's this line in the Titanic where they say, oh, but the ship's unsinkable. And he goes, it's made of steel, it'll sink. It's just a matter of time. And he knows that the iceberg has hit it. He knows that it's filling up with water. He knows it's happening. And it's just a matter of time. And they're all in denial about it. And I think... We're very much in that situation right now. The, the game is over. It's done. It's just a matter of time. It's got momentum. This would be like if we went back in time to the agricultural age and it's, you know, let's say it's 1700 and something. And then someone comes along and they say, oh, look, you know, we've got this steam tractor. Four people are now able to plow the whole field that it used to take 80 people to do. And you go, oh, but what are the other 70 something people going to do? It's like, no idea. <laughs> we don't know. We can't see around that corner. We don't know what the industrial age is going to look like. So you can imagine what that would be like. And you can imagine that, you know, you're sort of sitting there thinking, well, okay, there's these steam tractors. And then after that, there's combustion engines and things like that. It's like a lot of these horse and carts, we're not going to need a lot of horse and carts. Some people say, well, rubbish. We've had 10,000 years of working with horses. Like humans are always going to have horses. We've always had horses. You go, yeah, I'm not quite sure we are. AI is what's called a general purpose technology. And, you know, every so often a general purpose technology comes along 
printing press was a general purpose technology, uh, internet, oil and, and machinery and that sort of stuff, engines, uh, general purpose technology, electricity, general purpose technology, social media is actually a general purpose technology. So these are the types of technologies that tend to impact every industry at every level. And they reorganize the whole of society. They reorganize the way we do stuff. So AI is one of those. And it wasn't a big deal for the last 30 or 40 or 50 years because it was a narrow technology. So people might say, oh, well, AI has been around since you know the 1950s. We've been talking about AI. Yeah, but it's a narrow technology in that, in that sense. It's not general purpose. A calculator helps people do maths. It turns out before calculators, there were mathematicians in, in people's offices people whose job was to actually calculate stuff. These general purpose technologies, they change everything. So the game is up, the ship is sinking, but we've got a little bit of time, but it's definitely going down. Right. <laughs> so if you had to look into a crystal ball and think two, five, ten years, what do you think is the timeline to mass disruption? Well, there's a photo of New York, and I think it's 1901. Every single vehicle on the street is a horse and cart except for one motorized vehicle. And then 13 years later, same street, same spot, and every single vehicle on the street is a car, except for one horse and cart. It's a great photo, and it shows that it took about 12, 13 years to go from complete reliance on horses and carts to motorized vehicles, and it was just over a decade that that shift happened. Now, in order to make that shift, you had to have raw materials, production lines, physical atoms being reorganized into shapes. And you also had to buy the thing. It was very expensive for people to buy this new thing called a car. Despite all of those challenges, it only took 12 years to completely eradicate horses and carts and go over to motorized vehicles. Now, AI is going to be way faster than that. No one has to buy anything. It's free or almost for free. It's on your phone right now. It just plugs into everything we've already got. So you can plug AI into almost any technology that exists. And then the infrastructure is all there. We don't have to set up power plants or anything. Oh, obviously, there's compute power. You've got to have compute and, and all of that. But there is the means to create compute. And a small amount of compute, relatively speaking, in one location can serve people all over the world. Yeah, I mean, we, we're talking years. So for men in their 40s and 50s, if they fear the fact that the Titanic is actually sinking, what does a man, a successful man, who's got this roadmap in front of him, but sees that it's going to be disrupted in the next five years, what should he do? I think the first thing is to see it as a wave that can be surfed. And that if you've got an attitude of curiosity and enthusiasm and openness to change, then you're probably going to notice stuff that you naturally can move towards. Clinging on to this is the way it used to be and this is how it's meant to be done is probably not the answer. <clears throat> if you think about AI's two major superpowers, superpower number one is to get people to overconsume. So it's really good at getting you to listen to more Spotify than you intended to and getting you to buy more stuff on Amazon and getting you to watch more TikToks than you thought you'd watch. So it's great at that. It figures you out real fast and works out what you like and gives you more of it. And then it figures out when you're bored and gives you something else. So it's very, very good at that. The second superpower it has is the superpower to get you to create way more than you thought you could create in record time. So the ability to, like, let's say you're a lawyer, it kind of drafts the first draft of a contract and then lets you 
yeah, you can drop a contract into ChatGPT and ask it, what are some of the loopholes? What are some of the things that are wrong with it? What could I do to improve this? You know, summarize this in simple English. If you get copied in on a massive long email chain, you can just copy that whole email chain into ChatGPT and say, summarize this. And it'll just give you like the top line you know, briefing of what that whole email chain is about as a good starting point, which means that you're digesting the whole thing a lot faster. The other day I was running a workshop and everyone had submitted questions and all of that. It was a big spreadsheet. I just copied the whole spreadsheet, threw it into ChatGPT and said, give me the five top themes of all the questions. And it just goes, boom, here's the top five things everyone's interested in and summarized them all perfectly. But if you actually felt in yourself, you know what, that's what I trained as. This is what I've been good at for 25, 30 years. I'm sitting on all of this value, Mm. but I don't know what to do with it. And I want to do something different. It's just like, what were the four sort of first steps? Well, the value has shifted from content to context. So content is knowing how to draft contracts or knowing how to put together agreements or what should be in there and all of that stuff. Content is like writing emails and all of the backwards and forwarding and all that sort of stuff. Context is understanding why it's valuable in the first place, why it's important, what should we be doing, why do we do stuff the way we do it. So you've got to begin by saying, my content has become less valuable, but my context is quite valuable. So like, for example, you might, because AI doesn't have any context. It just does whatever you ask it to do. And one minute you could ask it to draft a contract and the next minute you could ask it to write a song. It doesn't care. It'll just give you whatever you ask of it. So the humans have to have the context. We have to have a bigger vision or a bigger picture. And we have to say, hey, just doing stuff isn't the valuable bit anymore, especially if that stuff can be done on a computer. Pretty much anything that happens on a computer is now going to be done by AI in some form or it'll be massively supported by AI, so a lot less people will be required. So it's like some people say, oh, well, you know, AI can't just do it all. And it's like, okay, but it can make one human five times more effective. So we just need one, not five. So it's still, the argument still stands. You know, it's kind of like lift operators, you know, at a certain time in the elevator. It's at one point there was a lift operator, that was a job. And then we discovered that we can just push buttons ourselves and, and we just don't need many lift operators. There's still one in Claridge's, right? So it's not like every lift operator lost their job, but most lift operators lost their job. So yeah, essentially what we want to do is we want to start thinking about context rather than content. So what do you know about? What are the dots you know how to join? If you zoom up out of your job and think bigger picture, that's where the value's going to go. Um, it's important not to knee-jerk, do a big knee-jerk reaction, throw the toys totally out the pram, you know, especially if you've got, like you said, mortgages and, you know, uh, obligations. Yeah, the reality is, is that when you're a parent and when you've got debt and all of that sort of stuff, you've got to make a few careful decisions. So it might require several months of study time and just sort of coming up with 10 ideas and talking those through with mentors, talking them through with people who have made a successful transition with their career. I really think that it's important to consider that you're probably standing on a mountain of value, but when you're so close to something, you can't see it. It's very hard to see the mountain that you're on. You can see a mountain from a distance, but if, you're, if you have to describe the mountain you're currently standing on, it's, you, you lack perspective. So you've got to 
almost have conversations with a, you know with someone who's got a little bit of distance and who can have an honest chat with you about what value you might have in this new realm. And so, yeah, it's super interesting. So it's still going to be a a role for the strategist as opposed to having five people doing it. It's just going to be that one person telling the AI how to do it. Yeah, we're going to see a lot of companies that are 10 or 15 people that do 100 million of revenue because it's 10 or 15 strategic roles and a few implementers and a lot of AI uh, doing a lot of stuff. So you'll see radically high revenue per person in some companies. You've got to be really careful too that there are these big juicy carcasses in the economy that are ripe for disruption. So like, for example, audit. Audit is totally something that an AI will do. And currently, thousands of people work in audit and earn really high incomes doing audit. And it's like, that is gonna, that's gonna get, that's a big, ripe, juicy apple for AI to go and take. So there'll be like a 15-person company that figures out how to do audit with AI, and they'll just go in and massively undercut the KPMGs of the world and the those kind of businesses. And it'd be very hard to compete because you'll have a relatively very small team who can punch seriously above their weight. Yeah, and I guess that is the, the sort of overarching theme of this podcast and sort of why I wanted to talk to you is because there are so many men and women in those positions, in those situations that perhaps aren't exposed to AI and like entrepreneurs are on a date or have been for the last sort of year, two years, and but potentially aren't necessarily sort of alive to actually the power of it. Mm. They heard of it, but they're not necessarily using they're it. They're not using yet. it every day. It's a big part of getting used to it is using it every day, just using ChatGPT as an everyday type thing. Quite interestingly, a lot of the blue collar work is the stuff that's really hard to automate. We're a long, long, long way from a robot coming and fixing your boiler. We're a long way from a robot being able to change roof tiles. We're a long way from being able to automate plumbing and electricity or pull up a floor and put down new floorboards. But we're miles away from anything that could automate anything like that. So the the great irony is actually the pendulum swinging. Uh, we've all grown up in a time where everyone said, oh, it's all about knowledge work and information economy and all this sort of stuff. Actually, the people who are going to be going down to the Ferrari dealership fairly soon are the ones who blue-collar businesses and blue-collar workers because decades ago, we took woodwork and metalwork out of school. We told people who aren't academic that they're idiots and very few people ended up going off and doing those blue-collar jobs and now we need them and now they're really expensive. So in some respects, it's like a class revolution where the the ruling powers are actually, AI is actually going to take out that knowledge, that traditional intelligence and actually democratize it as opposed to the other, which has been completely the other way around for many, many years. Yeah, I don't know if it will do that. I'm not sure. Um, I think there's definitely a revolution and pendulums tend to swing back to the, back to the other way. The middle, co- middle class since end of World War II has largely been built on the knowledge worker, especially after kind of the 1970s. If we look at long history, long, long, long history, it's actually a very, very, very small number of elites and everyone else is a serf or a pleb working on the land. So the, if we think that the default in humanity 
is that you have a very small number of people who own everything and a lot of people who are dependent upon those people for their women favor. That seems to be a default as to how society tends to organize over the long term. AI certainly has the capacity to return us to that. And the reason it has that capacity, if you look at uh, the agricultural age where that feudal society was, was the working model, it was based upon automation. And automation was essentially you put a seed in the ground and then the automation takes over, grows wheat, and then you harvest the wheat. But most of the work was done by God, right, or nature. Right? So essentially, we don't know why it happens, but essentially, if you own that land, you just put the seed in and then the automation does the work and then humans just wait and, and harvest at the, at the last minute. So all humans were really required for was plant seeds and pick the fruit. And it didn't matter if you were Cindy Crawford or Einstein, you were just planting seeds and picking fruit, essentially, for most of human history. And automation did everything. So if you look at how AI works, it's like digital soil. You just plant a prompt into it and it just goes nuts and creates something way more valuable than the prompt. And you just pick the fruit. So you plant seeds, pick fruit, plant, seed, plant prompts and, and pick responses uh, out of the AI. So in societies where largely everything's automated by nature or God or whatever, a software in this case, whoever owns that digital land is the landlord, is the landowner, is the king, queen, emperor, duke, duchess, whatever. And then everyone who essentially doesn't own a piece of digital land ends up you know, having to just women favor for those who do. So unless, unless society is deliberately organized to have a middle class, it's important for everyone to kind of know that, that there's no rule that says that the middle class has to exist. We had to build it. And if you don't build it, it just disappears. It's, it's been like that for 10,000 years. It's not normal to have that. So, you know, balls just don't stay up in the air. You've got to throw them up there. Middle classes don't just emerge. You have to very deliberately make sure that you organize a system that produces a great result for a lot of people because the default's not that. That's super interesting. So we take the middle class for granted. Yeah, we've just grown up in a period of time where it's just like it's just the normal thing that people own a house and people have their own jobs and all those kind of things and earn pretty good reasonable money. It's not been that way for most of human history. Yeah, that's astonishing. And it only really happened in a time where we needed a lot of humans to do stuff that only humans could do. Whereas if machines and computers can actually do that thing, then it disrupts that order of a good natural reason to pay people. Wow. <laughs> it's quite now, stunning, it's, isn't it? But also, I can't see around corners. I am a farmer in 1770 or whatever it is. I don't know what the industrial age looks like. I'm a child of the industrial age and the digital revolution, but I don't know what, you know, no one can see around the corner with this stuff. It really is, it's such a transformational technology. It's too big and too hard to predict what, you know, it could be total utopia. It could be that we all just don't have to do meaningless work and repetitive work anymore. And we all sit and make podcasts all day. And it's great. And everyone's got a podcast and makes a ton of money having fun with their podcast and running TED Talks. But we all live like millionaires and trust fund kids. And AI does all the background. <laughs>
What's that? There's that. But I think there's even a Instagram uh, handle which is like white guys who make podcasts or something like that. Something along the line, those lines. Just ripping any. Basically, the white guys just go out and make podcasts because that's basically all they're good for. Well, I'll push back on that. <laughs> there's a lot of valuable jobs that everyone can do. Personally, I don't like this narrative that you know because of the color of your skin or because you're male, you know, you need to play a play a small game. I think you know this is the time to play a big game. This is the time to say, you know what, I want to add as much value as I can. I want to have a great time. If there's a workplace that doesn't like me because of my gender or my... I'd say this to anyone, right? If there's a workplace that doesn't like you because of your race or your gender, get out of that workplace. That's a toxic environment to work in. I'd say that to my friends who are black. I'd say that to my friends who are women. I'd say if they don't like you because of your race and gender, go find something else. So, And unsubscribe from those Instagram accounts. You know, that stuff holds you back from playing a big game. This is the time where we need everyone who's got value to offer to offer it and to play a big game and to play full out and to not put a handicap on themselves unnecessarily. For the good of the world, I think that's, I mean, look, it's ridiculous that that's all that white guys have got to offer, you know. Um, I think it was partly tongue in cheek, but the, the, your response is absolutely spot on. We're not going to, we're certainly not going to make the world a better place by complete, continually focusing on what's politically correct and what's not. In order to make, okay, I'm, I'm hearing you, Dan, like I'm super motivated to actually go and make a dent in Slash terrified, yeah. <laughs> slash terrified, oh shit, I've got to actually do something about it. I've heard you've got this book called The Key Person of Influence. And that sounds terrifying in itself. Perhaps you'd like to explain the key person of influence and why that actually has a lot of relevance going forward into the AI world. I'll give you a bit of backstory. In my 20s, I worked with dozens of entrepreneurs, executives, uh, authors and speakers to launch them into new markets that they weren't currently in. And I was involved in doing these launch campaigns. And basically, my job was to take someone who had lots of value, but was relatively unknown, and basically make them a superstar in under a year. So I had to get them to the point where they could pull a crowd of 500 to 1,000 people, that they could get on telly, they could get in the papers, that they could sell tons of products and launch stuff and raise money. So I had to essentially reposition an individual from valuable but unknown to known for what they're good at. So I spent 10 years doing that in my 20s, uh, very successfully launched people into all parts of Australia and Singapore and UK and USA and all of that. So... The strategy is to essentially identify what someone's very valuable at and then position them in the market as being the key person of influence for that thing, to build a bit of a personal brand about it. Not in a narcissistic way. We're not trying to chase the spotlight. We're trying to actually, if anything, we're trying to shine the light on other things that they know about and and things that they can help and be valuable with. So there's a few different things that we knew to be the right ways to approach this. Uh, number one is how they pitch themselves. So you can always pitch yourself as newbie, as someone who doesn't know much. The way that you just talk and describe about what you do, people immediately assume, okay, this person's new starting out. Um, and I'll just elaborate on that. I know people who have changed career and they go, oh, I'm just brand new and I'm just starting out because they've changed career. And that's not true. You're not just starting out. You've got 20, 30 years of background. You've got 20 years of amazing history. You're evolving. You're, you're now finding new ways to add more value. So 
pitching that I'm doing something new or pitching that I'm starting something brand new that I'm new to this is not useful, right? So that would be, that's one pitch. The most common pitch is pitching that you're a worker, that you're a worker bee, that essentially you've got hours to sell, that you've got time, skilled labor to sell and that you essentially want to know if anyone else is interested in your skilled labor. And that's the vast majority of the way people pitch themselves. And then there are people who pitch themselves as a key person of influence, that they've got experience, that they're a figurehead for something, that they represent something, that they've got an agenda or a campaign that they're wanting to promote. And they're talking about the ideas or the campaigns that they want to promote. They're talking about the change or you know the impact that they're trying to see happen in the world. So you want to move to that top level of pitching. You want to pitch yourself at that, that I'm trying to get something done in the world and I need people to come and join my campaign for getting that thing done. And that's the key person of influence pitch, essentially. And then the next thing is like publishing content, putting yourself out there on social media a little bit, not to be famous, but to be well-connected, right? And to remind people what you're up to and what you're doing. There's productization. So you want to be able to have products that you sell or products that you represent. There's raising profile, being a voice on a stage or a voice on a podcast or a voice on a platform. And then there's doing joint ventures and partnerships, putting together deals, mobilizing resources. So those are the types of things that we would essentially get people focused on. And then in 2010, I rolled that out as a program, an accelerator for entrepreneurs. We did it with four and a half thousand people over a decade. And it just had phenomenal and consistent results where people who were valuable could then position themselves as a key person of influence within their industry and and get a lot more done. And with that, we take a quick pause today to bring Monumental to your attention. Monumental is a personal and professional development platform tailored for men in their professional prime that I founded a few years ago. We're dedicated to igniting purpose, nurturing wisdom, enabling you to craft a legacy that stands the test of time. Our programs are unparalleled in the leadership development space, offering content that truly transforms lives, backed by a commitment to confidentiality that sets us apart. Explore more at monumental.global or take a scorecard in the description below. Now, let's get back to the conversation. When I've been doing the podcast, is that the last part of it, the partnerships bit, is the interesting bit. Instead of this very energetically draining way of hustle, the hustle culture, it's actually now the other way around, whereas things are coming to me. And that has been a really exciting part. Yeah, partnerships are a really important thing. And actually, humans do partnerships. AIs don't really do partnerships, right? They can probably do the heads of terms, but they don't actually go out and meet people and do partnerships. So if you think about why you get big increases in success, why does someone have a big successful outcome? because they gained access to rare and guarded forms of leverage. So like, if you think about forms of leverage like fame or investment capital or distribution network, like distribution or exclusivity to represent a hot product, those forms of leverage are very rare and they're also protected. They're behind a gate. So if you do the first four things, you're good at pitching, you've published some content, you've raised your profile, you've got value, you're clear about all of that, you can go out and do a partnership and you show up as one of the top front runners for that rare form of leverage. So in in real terms, you know, you go talk to a private equity firm and they partner with you to scale the business or you go and talk to a famous person and they put their name on your product and put it in front of their audience. So those things start to happen 
And that's where you get the quote-unquote overnight success. Right, right. <laughs> that well-known well known anomaly. So for a guy, I know I need to pivot. It's basically starting the KPI process, coming off the corporate brand. Thinking, yeah, stop hiding behind the corporate brand is a great first step. Thinking about building a personal brand, because we all need a personal brand. Stop thinking that your value is in the content you produce and start thinking of it in as things like your networks, your context, the deals you can do, the talks you can give, your ability to mobilize people and resources and attention around an idea. So recognize that you've got great value and experience, but you're going to have to use that in a different way. And it'll be, you know, in a more modern, modern way. And you need to get to it because like the game's already playing. So this is not something you can kind of wait until you feel ready. You have to kind of feel ready after the fact because every day I'm talking to entrepreneurs who out there, they already have personal brands, they get it, and they're just looking at these big... To, to be honest, they're looking at companies that pay really high salaries for things, really high incomes, and they go, oh, that's a great industry we could disrupt. It's like, oh, look, that person's on 300 grand a year. If we can build the tech that replaces that, or replaces half of it, we can save companies huge amounts of money and we can go sell that to the company. And and then it happens real fast. There's a testing phase, six months, three months. Can can this tech actually produce? Can it do it? And then there's a readjustment phase of like, oh, okay, we only need one-fifth of the people that we used to have on that. So interesting. So in British culture, in these professional services, companies or let's just call it the service sector full stop as you say this is you know there's this institutional pride of the company brand i work for you know whatever the bank the chartered firm company the law the law firm is you know there's pride about being a partnership or a, a being a director in that company what do you say to the man when they turn around and go look i'm quite a private person i don't do social media and there's a sort of undertone of social media is actually kind of a bit below me. What do you say to those people who feel that, you know, and it could be a sense of fear about putting themselves into the, into the ether, which is, I understand that. But if you're using, oh, I'm a private person to protect yourself, would you say that you're actually harming yourself in the, in the long run? It's certainly a risk. It depends. If you're in a position where you really are that stable and that solid and you've got shares in a bunch of great AI companies and social media companies and you win regardless, if you own a whole bunch of real estate, got great debt to equity ratios, you own a whole bunch of shares in the S&P 500 and whoever wins, you win. Um, maybe you are in that position, you can afford to be private. And maybe it is very hard to disrupt you if you're in that genuinely in that position. But you know, just in just in my career, the last 20 years, I remember ad reps at newspapers and they thought they were onto a great wicket. Every time I pick up the phone to buy an ad advertisement in the paper, they sell me an $8,000 quarter page ad. They get their 5 or 10% or whatever it was. They're in a nice cushy office. They're working in big respected media brands. And these people were everywhere, like ad reps for newspapers. There were an entire building with a floor of ad reps for newspapers. They don't exist anymore. I remember, you know, the people like there were a lot of car yards and people who were brokering car yards. There were people who used to, a lot of people who are in the brokerage space for various things and they just, those jobs don't exist. They're just gone. They've deprofessionalized. We just don't need that anymore. People can do it for themselves. People can 
find a used car online, they can find a house online. So these industries just haven't really grown despite the revenue in the industry growing and all of that sort of stuff. And this, these shifts happen slowly at first and then quickly. A great example is where people meet their spouse. For a long time, it was always through friends or through school or through work. And now it's like mostly online. 70% of people now meet online. I'm old enough to remember that that was such a weird thing to do, to meet someone online, that you would like the idea of just meeting a stranger because they're on a dating website. I, I remember the, when that was creepy and weird and, <laughs> and it was like, who would do that? What kind of weird people are you going to meet there? And now it's creepy and weird to meet someone at work. Right, it's so interesting. So things, things change. <laughs> I remember living in Fulham 2004 with one of my best mates and we signed up to this website called hot or not <laughs> we put our best you know brown tanned bleached like you know the highlighted hair and we, we competed whether we could be i went to whether you could be hot or I not i wouldn't tell you what the scores were we did compete and that was just like whether you're hot or not and then it moved very quickly into, into social dating. media yeah. and dating well yeah. social media right and then i guess yeah facebook was an upgrade from that yeah so so to that person who's I don't want to put myself out there. Like, I don't want to put myself out there. Like, I'm the same. I just can't afford to. <laughs> like, I'm, I'm, I make too much money having a massive network and having people who know me and being able to get on a stage and all of that sort of stuff. And that also gives me a lot of security. But I, I think probably if I was absolutely minted, then I, I might consider it. But it's too risky. It's just too risky now. Hang on, Rima has it. You're I'm, I'm the, doing pretty well. Now, now the chairman of a of a three figure, oh, sorry, no, nine figure valuation business. Uh, I don't know if we're there yet, but yeah, look, we're we're doing well, right? We're on track for a hundred million dollar exit with with Zotec and all of that. But you know, even still, it's my network and my presence and my online ability that allows me to do the next one and the next one and the next one. I don't intend to sell and then do nothing. I want to like as long as I'm in the game and I'm in, and I'm ambitious, then I want to have a network. I want to have people who. Here's the thing: social media allows us to connect with anyone in the world based on shared ideas. It used to be shared geography that we went to school together, we worked in the same buildings, we bought from the shop down the road. Where are you, where am I going to get a pair of shoes? Oh, I'll get it from the local shoe shop. Where am I going to get my groceries? The local grocer. Uh, now, digital connects us to people all over the world who have shared values, shared ideas, and it doesn't really matter where they are geographically, and same with products and services as well. So the whole world's reorganizing at the moment. Throughout history, we've had geographical empires, Ottoman Empire and Prussian Empire and British Empire and the Spanish Empire. And the latest empire is actually a empire shift between geography and digital. So you could call it from the earth to the clouds. Right. <laughs> so cloud being digital cloud. If you go to San Francisco, you're going to see people who are billionaires and they're literally living on top of people who are homeless. And this is because the geography doesn't matter. The billionaire is operating in the digital environment and the homeless person is stuck in geography begging from people in the local geography. And this is how we know that it's not geographical anymore. Geography has almost little to do with what you're, you know, what you've got going on. You're either occupying space in the digital landscape, or you're basically uh, trusting that the world will go back to a geographical 
thing. You might have grown up with some amazing people from your school network or something like that. One by one, they're going to migrate up to the cloud. One by one, they're all going to go, oh, I do things this way now because that's where it's all happening. And they're going to say, oh, yeah, I connect with my investors through the online environment. Oh, I connect with my distribution channels through the online environment. I connect with my best opportunities. I do my research. I do. I collect data. I, I'm focused on automation and AI and all this sort of stuff that's up here in the cloud. It's like, you still want to meet me in a stuffy private members club and have a cup of coffee and talk about the good old days at school. Like, I'm not going to hang out with you. Like, you know, I love you and you're a great friend, but catching up at the boys club in London and sitting around a table, sipping cups of coffee, talking about nothing. And then at the very end, oh, but do you mind, you know, finding in, you know, such such a, yeah, it's a very inefficient way of getting things done. And one by one, that network is going to evolve up and go digital. And you got to front run that. Yeah. And that used to be, that's all, um, a great way of putting it, Dan, used to be that people lived in cities or lived in certain places for that reason, the network, the physical network to actually then go and get stuff done. Whereas now that's, you know, it's blown, it's been blown out of the water. So it's that sort of take on why you live somewhere has a completely different spin on it. Mm. And I don't think everyone is having that conversation, but COVID definitely brought more of that to the fore. And it, you know, just in giving a good example of what we do, you know, the old men's groups used to literally go to village halls, churches, maybe even early doors in the pub. That's how they met. But actually, as soon as COVID happened, the adoption of Zoom was so rapid Mm. that actually suddenly it became a forum that could be global. And now we have guys from, you know, the States, UK, Europe, Asia, all joining on the same call and it's called a community. Yeah. <laughs> you know? Yeah, absolutely. And many of them have never been in the same room. No, no, many of them still haven't met. For me personally, we've got about 100 people on our team and they're all over the world. And, um, you know, I was thinking this morning, it's like, thank God we're not, a geographically limited little business because geographically in one place, we really can only have the best people in that geography. As soon as we're a workplace that is remote, we can have the best people in the world at the right price. Like for example, the guy who runs our Facebook ads in his spare time is a chess champion in Germany and he's he lives in Berlin and he's the best Facebook ads guy that we've been able to find and I've got an amazing video editor in Bangladesh and I've got a customer success person in Indonesia, another CS person in uh, the Philippines who's phenomenal. And I've got a business partner in Australia and a business partner in Toronto and we see each other twice a year. Some of my best opportunities right now are in Dubai. Some of my next best opportunities are in Austin. And so do you see yourself living in London forever or is it if do you see other opportunities? I really, I really enjoy London. I like London, but I like it not for work. I like it for just the lifestyle of London. You know, last night we went out and saw Professor Brian Cox in a beautiful theatre in Richmond. That stuff happens in London and I do, I do love the restaurants and the I like the parks and I like London life. The Sadiq Khan's doing his best to ruin it. But, but other than that, it is actually a really great city. But I'm not stuck in London. Honestly, if they ram the taxes up or if they make it unlivable, it literally would be zero effort for me to pack, pack my bags and move somewhere else. The biggest effort would just be putting kids in new schools. 
but I can be anywhere in the world as if I've got an internet connection. You know, this is the other thing for people who make these policy decisions. They're living in a geographical world. They define themselves as the UK government, the London City Council. So it's always the geography is the first thing they want you to know about themselves. And the cloud empire doesn't care. Put the taxes up. Watch 50 people a day move to Dubai. And they're all the high taxpayers. And they're just, you know, the only thing stopping them in most cases is just that their kids are in schools and they're happy happy with those kids in those schools. If they haven't got kids and they're a high earner, oh, okay, business class flight, thank you very much, I'm off. And uh, I'll see you later when you when you get with the program. Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? It's talked a lot about how the UK and our Western countries can become successful again, or I don't dare I say it, make America great again, make Britain great again, and all of these sort of slogans that have been used over the last five, six, seven years. But ultimately, the economies are so laden with debt that in some capacity, they've got to tax way higher than a lot of emerging countries, such as the as Dubai or Abu Dhabi or Singapore or Hong Kong. No, not that Hong Kong is emerging, but there are other options. I think burdening the wealthy and the successful people, the high income earners, would have been a great idea up until recently. I mean, where can they go? They're stuck. So saddle them, saddle them up. <laughs> you know, get everything they've got, tax them 99%. Uh, I remember, um, you know, what was he? The. Uh, the Duke of Wellington, I think they taxed him 99%. They, he was so wealthy that they thought they'd get it all. And, and what choice did he have, right? But the, the, the reality today is that literally you get on a flight and have the best of both worlds. I can set up a company here if I want to and I can have a tax structure and live, live wherever I want, work wherever I want, have companies set up wherever I want. I'm a pragmatist. It's like if you think you can get away with taxing the rich, try it redistribute the wealth, reinvest it in the middle class. The rich need a middle class anyway. Like the, the rich have to have wealthy people to sell to, people with money to sell to. So it's not a bad idea. There's, it's not fundamentally flawed to just tax more the rich. The problem is, is pragmatically, where you, it's a really dangerous strategy. For every 1% you lose, you ought to have like 20 people at the middle to make up for that, right? Because one, I think 1% of people pay... It's like astronomical. It's like 40% of the tax, the income tax. 1% pay 40% of income tax. It's, it's disproportionately high at the, like, I, I pay insane taxes, like ridiculous taxes. And I look at it and, you know, I'm getting to the point where, like, genuinely, if we didn't have kids, we'd be out because there are plenty of nice cities around the world that don't tax you that much. It's just that I have a nice family and a nice school in a nice house and we're very settled and we're happy. Which I think a lot of people can not empathize with, but can relate to. Mm. And I, but I also feel they'll be going, well, yeah, Dan, it's right for you because you can take your business anywhere. But well, that's that, the, I didn't accidentally do that. Exactly, right? <laughs> and, and exact, I didn't trip over one day and have a digital business. Exactly. So that's the message. If we're going to take an, if we're well, going to main message is to, te, is to sort yourself out. Sort yourself out, set yourself up a digital business, be a key person of influence, build your brand so that anyone anywhere can find you. If you are the best, if you're the best in the world at whatever it is you do, then let people know that. And it's not narcissistic. You're not taking photos of your abs. You're not going to be posing on your Lambo. I'm not suggesting that you 
take photos of your avocado and toast every morning. Like I'm talking about let people know what you do, publish some interesting and thought-provoking content on LinkedIn, put some, do some video interviews, that sort of stuff, build your network, have the ability to deliver to someone who's anywhere in the world, start reaching out and connecting with the connectors in other parts of the world that are interesting. Uh, so that they can they can leverage you. You know, one of the companies I own is a um, IT services company, and all of our best contracts are now coming from the US. Now we're based in Milton Keynes, and US companies are saying, "Oh, wait a sec, these guys are really good at this particular thing. These guys are really good at high branded uh, e-commerce stores, mid cap, uh, two to twenty million worth of sales. They're really really good at that." So we're getting a whole bunch of US companies that we, we sell to, and they love our prices being, being in the Milton, Milton Keynes. They think, oh, that's great. That's way cheaper than we could get in the US. We're probably going to do a deal with a Saudi company, but we're not getting any business in Milton Keynes. <laughs> we, we're not even trying to get business in Milton Keynes. That's where, that's where it happens to be that the company's based with a few of our, uh, our central team. A lot of our team are in Pakistan. A lot of our team are in Wales, and uh, we've got people around but originally the business was started in Milton Keynes. And a lot of people, that's an amazing story, a lot of people would say, well, how do you get these people from uh, Pakistan, Bangladesh, and all the rest of it? And, I mean, I use Upwork. Mm -hmm. It's that where you kind of use um, various different other freelancing websites. Yeah, Upwork. And, you know, when you get very used to just having Zoom calls with anyone, you find one or two good people and I'm not really caring where they are. I'm just caring that they come well recommended. And, oh, it just happens to be you're in Pakistan or it happens to be... I've actually got phenomenal talent in, in Ukraine at the moment. So there are, there are actually some of the world's best talented developers who are now unemployed in Ukraine and amazing people who up until very recently worked in incredible jobs. But those companies pulled out of Ukraine and now they get, the guys can't leave. And if they don't have a job, they have to go to the front line. So, you know, I've got some of my best talented guys in, in Western Ukraine on the development team. But for me, it's like geography is irrelevant. It's just, can, do they have an internet connection and are they any good? Right. Again, even the unskilled Brits, if you like, it's a wake-up call. You're in a global, you're in a global market and not in the Milton Keynes market. And a lot of amazing developers in Pakistan are like two grand a month. And those people would be on 200 grand a year if they're in the US. So in summary, it would be a sense of get yourself into the cloud and get, and get yourself a personal brand. Build a personal brand. Um, start thinking about business as a global cloud-based entity or get into boiler repair and roof fixing because <laughs> everything needs fixing and we can't automate that stuff. And embrace AI, right? Embrace the creativity of it. Um, embrace, use it as a tool rather than it using you as a consumer. And just recognize that things are going to change. This is going to, this is one of those moments. This is a moment where, oh, suddenly homes are electrified. Every home's going to have a washer and a dryer and a dishwasher and a, and a toaster and a kettle, right? So there's going to be big changes in the way things happen. And those changes will have consequences. And the status quo is, definitely right this minute being challenged on several fronts. So you're either going to surf this wave or get dumped by it. And Dan, finally, if people want to hear more from you, get more education, where should they find so, you? So I wrote a, 
a series of books on entrepreneurship. Um, Key Person of Influence is quite uh, popular, but there's six books um, at the moment. Lots of podcasts. And also you can check out the businesses. Great stuff. Thanks for joining us. Cheers. So thank you for joining me, Pete Hunt, on the Privileged Man podcast. If you're interested in learning more about our personal and professional development platform for men in their professional prime, please visit the website monumental.global for more details. Thank you.